0: Hey guys, Jen here. I just want to tell you something new that's related to the podcast this week before we jump into the episode. Now you can listen to Art Curious with the free Radio Public app. And this is a really great app for finding and following podcasts. And it also has curated podcast playlists from interesting people all around the world. They're kind of like mixtapes, except they're for podcasts. And luckily, I've been asked to create one myself. And you can listen to it right now, this week, in Radio Public. Just visit radiopublic.com artcuriouspod to download the app for iPhone or Android, and you can listen to the shows that I chose as some of my very personal favorites. That's radiopublic.com artcuriouspod. Okay, thanks. Now on with the show. Sometimes when I am looking at a particularly fascinating work of art, I find myself overwhelmed with awe. For the creative act itself and the technical prowess that was needed to bring it to fruition. I've often had those moments where I've thought to myself, wow, how did this all come about? And what is the inspiration behind this piece? And admittedly, that's the whole concept behind this podcast, learning the fun and captivating stories in art history. The tale about the invention of painting is an interesting one in and of itself. But I'm not talking about how painting was actually probably invented, wherein our ancient ancestors palmed pigment directly onto their cave walls. This one is much more fanciful. According to a legend spun by the Roman author Pliny the Elder in the first century, the very first portrait of a human being ever created was by a Corinthian woman in 600 BC. This woman, sometimes referred to as Cora or simply the Corinthian maid, was deeply in love with her soldier boyfriend, who was due to leave the town the following day. Late that night at the maid's home, the young man fell asleep, and as the maid gazed adoringly at her beloved, she noticed his shadow projected on the wall behind him by the flickering candlelight. With a flash of inspiration, she delicately traced his profile directly onto that wall, capturing his visage so that she could remember him and their romance in his absence. Painting, or portraiture really, had been created for the very first time. Pliny's sentimental legend has been a popular one throughout the last 2,000 years, becoming particularly fashionable during the late 18th century when all things Greco-Roman were deemed the height of sophistication. And the romantic element certainly only prolonged its popularity. But what I love most about this story isn't the love story, though it's certainly swoon-worthy. It's the fact that the subject, or muse, actually, is a man. And that artist-creator? The Corinthian maid. A woman. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless... But sometimes, the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. Art history is full of murder, intrigue, feisty women, rebellious men, crime, insanity, and so much more. And today, we are going to look at the relationship and occasional romance between artists and their muses, with a particular emphasis on one woman whose connections to two brothers illustrates this in a compelling way. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history, this is the Art Curious Podcast. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Like the story of the origin of painting, the concept of the muse stems from the ancient world. Muses come from Greek mythology, where they were hailed as the nine inspirational goddesses of the arts. Each of the original nine muses had a specific forte—music, love poetry, history. Strangely enough, the original nine muses covered three different types of poetry among them, but none of them covered the visual arts, so go figure. Later, the Muses became part of the Roman pantheon of gods and goddesses, so they became worshipped in their own right as celestial figures whom you can contact in times of creative need. But like so many deities or holy figures, eventually they were brought back down to earth and repurposed for secular needs. After the fall of the Roman Empire and the adoption of Christianity throughout the Western world, the term muse no longer had that same spiritual connotation. Instead, it transformed into a phrase that could be used by anyone claiming a specific person as an inspiration or an artistic influence. But one thing did seem to stick from ancient times, and that's the identification of the muse as a woman. Which then, of course, means that the creative type was usually a man. Once a goddess, now a lowly mortal who can subtly influence the male genius. Oh, how the mighty have fallen it seems like artists and creators could really go in two directions with their adoption of a muse. The first is an indirect approach, wherein the artist chooses an unattainable woman upon whom he can project his love and fantasies. In turn, this unattainable woman inspires the creation of the probably semi-tortured artist's masterpieces. The epitome of this relationship is that of the early Italian Renaissance poet Petrarch, and his love, Laura. In the 1320s, Petrarch, who had previously hoped to become a priest, caught sight of a woman named Laura in a church in Avignon, France. We really know next to nothing about the historical Laura, except that she was beautiful, with light hair and a dignified bearing. According to his book, Secretum, or The Secret, Petrarch did meet Laura officially, but she rejected his advances because she was already married. However, everyone who has ever listened to a hairband ballad knows that the best works of art come from heartbreak, so Petrarch's poems blossomed in spite of his lovesick despair. Or more accurately, because of it. Same goes for Petrarch's precursor, Dante Alighieri, and his undying love for his muse, Beatrice. Some pundits and philosophers who have examined the special relationship between the muse and the artist have stated that this distance is actually what makes a true creative relationship. Indeed, Germaine Greer, that stalwart of second-wave feminism, wrote in 2008 that, quote, "...physical congress with one's muse is hardly possible because her role is to penetrate the mind rather than having her body penetrated." And Greer goes further to say that there is actually a gender reversal going on in the artist and muse roles, because it is the man who brings forth the creation from within himself after being germinated by the muse, so to speak. But as much as Greer wants us to think otherwise, there is a secondary direction that the artist slash muse relationship can, and often does, take. And once we move past the courtly love epics of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, this type of relationship became especially popular. Because of the intimate nature of the act of creating anything, whether it be visual art, music, an epic poem, or the like, the muse tended to be someone with whom the artist could closely connect. This meant that for some artists, his muse was a woman already of utmost importance in his life. A crush, a lover a wife, or a mistress. Therefore, it seemed, it was a natural gravitation towards a romantic, or at least an erotic, if not always sexual, relationship. Jumping into the 20th century, we find an artist who epitomizes the artist dependent on a muse, and one who had a variety of them during his long lifetime, a couple of whom he actually ended up marrying. This is Pablo Picasso, that great artist and consummate womanizer, Picasso's view of women certainly isn't a kind one. He very famously once said, quote, There are only two kinds of women, goddesses and doormats. And he supposedly said this to one of his mistresses. So a person who was kind to and about women, Picasso most definitely was not. But it's almost impossible not to take his wives and mistresses into account when looking at much of his creative output. Both of his wives, Olga Kokova and Jacqueline Roque, as well as many of his more famous mistresses, including Fernand Olivier, Dora Mar, and Francois Giot, inspired him throughout his lifetime, beginning with some of his earliest Cubist works and moving towards the last decade of his life. As Sotheby's scholar Georgina Gold noted, Picasso was incredibly passionate, and the way he orchestrated the portraits of the women in his life really expressed his feelings at the time. It's fascinating to look at how each image of the women in his life, and how he was representing them, and how it reflects his career and his personal life. It's all intertwined. Though each of these women played an important role in Picasso's artistic development, one muse tends to stand higher than the rest. And that is one of his youngest mistresses, Marie-Thérèse Walter, who began a relationship with the master when she was just 17 years old, and he was 45. At the time, the late 1920s, he was also still married and living with his first wife, Olga. But together, he and Walter carried on a secret affair for nearly a decade until Picasso left Walter in favor of a dalliance with Dora Maar. But during the course of their relationship, Marie-Thérèse Walter was an inspiration for the blonde, bright, and sunny women in some of the most acclaimed works from the 1920s and 1930s, such as The Dream and Girl Before a Mirror images of which you can see on the Art Curious website. So, for Picasso, the idea of sex and romance wasn't separate from the art of creation. It was integral. We could probably spend an entire hour of the show just rattling off the names and relationships between famous artists and their muses. But the one thing that tends to be pretty standard is that the muses are typically female, and those creative geniuses are men. We've talked a bit before in previous episodes about this idea of the difficulties and challenges that faced women who have pursued careers in the visual arts prior to the 20th century, not the least of which includes the strict banning of female artists from drawing from the nude model. So it's necessary to remember that women might not have had the chances to develop their own muses in the same way as their male counterparts. That isn't to say that there weren't some great women who turned the tables on those gender roles and found their own muses, some of whom just happened to be men. One particular artist had a unique artist-slash-muse relationship, acting as each throughout the course of her lifetime, and developing her own muses, plural along the way. This is Berthe Morisot, the French painter who was one of the very few women to be an accepted member of the Impressionist circle in the late 19th century. By her mid-twenties, Morisot, a beauty with dark hair and gleaming eyes, had been proposed to a number of times by various suitors. But she declined each of them in favor of pursuing art, she said, over domestic cares. Luckily, she had familial means and support to study under some of the great painters of the time, including Camille Carreau, and had been presented widely and approvingly throughout Paris. In 1867, though, the young Morisot's life took a turn after a chance meeting at the Louvre Museum. While she was sketching from one of the Louvre's masterpieces, she was introduced to Edouard Manet, a painter who was both modern and traditional, conservative and yet quite scandalous, and who was famous, or infamous really, for his paintings like his Olympia and Luncheon on the Grass. Both artists had much in common with similar familial backgrounds, and they traversed in the same artistic circles, with both of them having been selected for the prestigious annual art exhibition, The Salon, in Paris. Immediately, these artists developed a kinship, a mutual respect, and a need to work together in paint and pigment. According to some historians, it seems that the relationship began with Bert in the position of muse. Edward Manet painted 12 separate portraits of her, and it should be noted that there was nothing improper that was going on during Morisot's modeling sessions. Morisot was always properly clothed, and her mother, as custom for unmarried women entailed, accompanied her as her chaperone. But the fact of the matter remains that Manet painted Berthe Morisot more than any other woman, including his own wife. There's something about her in these images, too. Something deeper, more brooding, a bit more mysterious than nearly any other woman depicted by an Impressionist or Post-Impressionist. Perhaps it is because there is a sense of longing there. But for what remains up for debate. As viewers, we can intuit that she isn't necessarily happy in the position of model and muse. No, it seems that she was probably much more comfortable standing behind the canvas than in front of it. That way, she could be the one in control of the situation. And control was something that she would have wanted a little bit more of, considering that she probably felt a little unmoored in terms of her romantic interests. The truth of the matter is that in her surviving letters, Bert expressed that she had strong feelings from N.A., but that those feelings were complicated by frustration and jealousies. Her letters, by the way, were compiled and published by her grandson, so there is no way to tell how heavily they were edited and what may or may not have been removed, in terms of revealing Bert's personal life. What is clear, though, is that she went through a period of profound self-doubt, as many creators do and certainly seeing her friend and ally succeed may have been difficult at times. That, combined with the possibility that Bert may have felt an unrequited love for the artist, certainly further complicated their relationship. So it may have been an embarrassment and a disappointment, but also somewhat of a relief, when Manet suggested that she marry his younger brother, Eugene. And she said yes. The incredible thing about Berthe Morisot, though, is that even after her marriage and after she became a mother to her only child, Julie, she continued to pursue her artistic career—a rarity, to be sure, in the 19th century. And she and Edward Manet continued their professional relationship throughout, even if it lacked the same intensity than prior to her marriage to his brother. They gave each other advice and helped each other experiment. He was known to have dabbled and cleaned up part of her paintings, with her permission, mostly, and she encouraged him to loosen up his brushwork and lighten his palette, following in her much more expressive and impressionistic style. But this new period in Morisot's life also marked the end of the portraits that Edward Manet painted of her. And interestingly enough, Bert Morisot never, ever painted him, not even prior to her marriage. That artist-slash-muse relationship was only a one-way street. Perhaps Bert Morisot didn't want to paint Manet for any number of reasons. Maybe the intensity of her feelings for him, whether they be platonic or romantic, were just too much for her to work out on canvas. Or maybe she simply wasn't interested in Edward as a model. But there could also be another reason behind her disinterest. She already had another muse, her new husband. By all accounts, there was a real and true love between Bert and Eugène, who was very supportive of his wife's artistic career. Sure, it helped that he had a brother who was also extremely successful in the arts, so he was probably already inclined to be knowledgeable and helpful in that arena. Regardless, Eugène was the perfect match for a woman who strongly wanted to carry on in her own independent work and study. And this unrestricted support paid off visually as Eugène became a frequent model for his wife, sometimes portrayed by himself and sometimes shown in the company of their daughter, who herself was another one of Morisot's most favorite subjects. Eugène posed for his wife occasionally until his death in 1892 at the age of 58. Morisot herself died only three years later, in 1895, at the age of 54. So, when we get down to it, who really was Bert Morisot's muse? In essence, the connection between her and the Manet brothers might be able to fulfill both sides of the muse and artist relationship that we discussed earlier in this episode. The romantic-slash-sexual side, the one so favored by Picasso and others, could be satisfied by the inspiration that Morisot received from her husband, Eugène. But the mental connection stipulated by Germaine Greer as the much more important factor in the muse and artist relationship, well, that one could have also been Edward Manet. So which one, then, was her true muse? Or did she have both of her muses at the same time? Indeed, the concept of the muse in today's sight is so old-fashioned and pretty limited. Maybe neither man could or should be considered Bert Morso's muse. Claiming someone as a muse can put a little too much power into the hands of the non-creator, you might say. So instead, perhaps we can just accept that more so was a great artist who found inspiration in various people in her life, regardless of their gender and her relationship to them. Really, what's love got to do with it? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Art Curious Podcast, a proud member of the Modest Podcast Network. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Production assistance for the show is provided by Kabunki Creative, K A B O N K I.com. For images, information, and links to our previous episodes, please visit our website at artcuriouspodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ArtCuriousPod. If you like the show, please consider donating to help offset the costs associated with keeping it going, and thanks to the many of you who have already donated. Don't forget, too, that if you don't have any spare change, you can support us just as much and just as importantly by leaving a review and a rating on iTunes. Please check back with us in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history.